Um, and we're going to continue in that sermon series this, this morning. Um, but before we get to that, I want to tell you something about myself, something personal about myself. And before I tell you, I'm just going to pause for a minute, because I know when I say that, my wife's hands instantly started to sweat. She's panicked right now about what I'm going to say. It's building. No. What I want to tell you is, I'm an extrovert, if you didn't know that. Did you hear that sigh of relief? She already knew that. But I love people. I love talking with people, joking with people, caring about people. And I say that because as I go through Scripture, I find myself when I read Scripture that I'm drawn to the people, who they are, where they came from, what they're doing, how they're feeling. And I think we can tend to read the Bible and think that the people back in the early church in biblical times, that they're just so much different than us. They had it easier. They had it different. And it was easier to share their faith. But I hope we find, as we go through this morning, that the church is really no different today in a lot of ways than it was back then. Right? We are the church. The church is made up of the people. And people are still kind of messy. I don't know if you knew that about yourself. I did. Not about you, about me. But we also know that Jesus is Lord and that we are not. Same thing they knew back then. And I say all that because as we go through this morning, I'm, I'm hoping that that is what we draw from this, that we can be encouraged and we can be comforted by the early church to draw us forward today. So we're going to pick it up in Acts 20. But if you think back a couple weeks, Andrew taught out of Acts 19. And we found Paul was in Ephesus and there was an uprising or a riot about these things that he was teaching. And then at the end of Acts 19, things start to calm down a little bit. And so we're going to pick it up in Acts 20, verses 1 through 6. And you'll probably recognize this because Andrew did read it a couple weeks ago and he challenged you or asked you the question of who are you traveling with? Are you traveling with believers of Jesus? And I think if you're here, at least in part, that answer is yes. And then after we go through verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at this crazy story in verses 7 through 9. But let's start with chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Soapter, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secunda from, Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tetricus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival on unleavened bread, and after five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Andrew read that a couple weeks ago, and as I read it now, we think, well, this is just Paul traveling. This is just a journal of what he did, which in some ways is probably true, but I also think it paints a beautiful picture of who Paul is, right? We often hear about him being this great missionary, 
and this great evangelist, which are very much true of Paul. But I think this paints a beautiful picture of his pastoral heart. Like he loved these people of Ephesus. He had served them, he had served with them, and he had witnessed God do just amazing things in them and through them. He'd been with them for over two years. And now we see him wanting to encourage them and strengthen them before he leaves. And then he travels back north to Macedonia. And these would have been the churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, the churches that we found planted if we go back to Acts 16 and 17. But Paul's going back to strengthen them because Paul knows what we should all know, that we're all in this together. We're no different. We're all called to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. But we're also called to go and share the good news to those who don't know. So see, friends, the early church is no different than us. It's never, it's never been an either or. We don't get to choose which one we do. It's always been a both and. And then we see that he heads south to Greece and he spends three months doing more of the same, loving and caring and encouraging people. And then as he gets ready to leave Greece, there's a plot against him. We don't know what that plot was, but we know that it was severe enough that Paul thought, okay, we're changing course. So he goes back up to the north where he gets ready to head east to Troas. And then we see him accompanied by these guys with really weird names. No offense to anybody named Timothy. But he's accompanied by Soapter, son of Pyrrhus of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Tetricus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Has anybody ever been to like a social gathering where you wear a name tag that says, hello, my name is, and it said Trophimus? <laughs> well, if you ever meet that guy, you can say, hey, you're in Acts 20, and I guarantee you he will be impressed if you remember that. But it's the people, like I said earlier, that are so intriguing to me. I mean, we, and Andrew talked about this a couple weeks ago, we know these guys love Jesus, right? And they, from all these people from different churches, they would have been carrying an offer, offering with them from their home church to when they got to Jerusalem. And there's two of these guys that are the reason that I wanted to double back and, and catch this passage again. Aristarchus and Secundus. We don't have their biographies. We don't know their whole life stories. We know they're from the church in Thessalonica, right? A great church. Paul wrote two letters to them, First and Second Thessalonians. But Aristarchus would have been a name given to somebody with a lot of nobility, with wealth or status or influence in that culture. It infers that he was somebody from the ruling class, probably one of the, the best of the best of their culture. This is where we get the word aristocracy or aristocrat. Someone you might think is a big deal. Someone that might even tend to think that they themselves are a big deal. And we can see why Paul would want that kind of person around, right? He's wealthy, he's influential. 
But then we look at who his traveling partner is. It's a man named Secundus, which kind of sounds like the word second. This would have been a very common name for a slave in a Roman household. Because part of slavery is removing their humanity, their dignity. So they wouldn't call people by their name because that would recognize their humanity. They just simply would number them. So your, your head slave or your top slave would probably be named Primus or Prime or number one. And your secondary slave would be named Secundus. So we have this noble man of wealth and status. And then we have a slave. And this would have not only blown the mind of the Romans, it probably would have greatly offended them. Like, if you heard this good news of Jesus, this Messiah that they're talking about, it all sounds really intriguing, but do you know if you go to those meetings that you might have to sit next to a slave? That would have greatly offended the Romans. But it's also the beautiful picture that we are all God's people, that we're all in this together. And I questioned myself all week whether I should go back, double back, and cover this. But I just got this sense that someone here needed to hear that this morning. That no one here is so powerful or so wealthy or so influential. There's no one here that is so low in wealth or status or influence. There is no one here that has done such great things that you have an extra measure of God's favor. No one here has ever screwed up so bad that you have fallen out of God's favor. We are all God's children, and we are all in this together. Right? Paul so, or God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, will never die, but have eternal life. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're all in this together. And as I thought through that this week, I was trying to picture this Aristarchus and Secundus. And in my little over 10 years of full-time ministry, I've got to meet some brilliant pastors, teach them amazing sermons. I've got to listen to brilliant minds, like explain and talk about theology, some of which I even understood. <laughs> but these people were influential. I mean, they, they knew what they were talking about. And I've also got to spend time with a lady named Ma Dodo, which I think you've heard me talk about before a lady in her early 90s that had lived in the same mud shack in the middle of nowhere Haiti for over 70 years. And she prayed over our team with such fire. She was so alive for the Lord. So we have these great teachers and brilliant theologians and this Ma Dodo who in the big picture of the world would seem so insignificant. 
But the one thing that we all had in common was we loved the one that first loved us. So just like the early church, it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from. If we love Jesus, we're in it together. And so we see this interesting cast of characters traveling with Paul. And if you didn't catch it, when we get to verses 5 and 6, there's a shift. I'll read it, see if you can catch it. So these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we, failed from, we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Anybody catch the shift? Luke goes from saying, he went there, he did this, to it's now we and us. If you look back in Acts 16, when Paul's getting ready to leave Philippi, he said this church still needs influence, it still needs some leadership, and Luke stays behind. And now we find it in Acts 20 that Luke and Paul are reunited. It's no longer Paul went and did this, it's we did this. So from here on out, we're seeing Luke give a first-hand account of what's happening. So we move on to an interesting story in Acts 7, or 20, 7 through 12. And again, it shows even more similarities between the early church and our church. It reveals interesting things about people. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were wait, or meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was falling into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on a young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. People took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So before we get to the craziness of Eutychus, look at how this starts. On the first day, they met together and they broke bread. Sounds like what we do, right? We're not much different. And then we see these other awesome similarities. Verse 7, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. So, my friends, <laughs> I have nowhere to be tomorrow. And if you want me to be a biblical teacher, you need to get comfortable. I would never do that to you. The mind cannot retain what the seat cannot endure. <laughs> but I wonder what Paul was thinking. I mean, that doesn't sound normal. But we see as we look back that this might, that Paul might be thinking, this is the last time I'll get to be in Troas. This is the last time I will get to see these people and care for them and love them and encourage them and strengthen them. Right? Just a moment ago, we read about when he was leaving Greece, there was a plot against him. 
In Acts 19, it talked about a riot breaking out against what Paul was teaching. And as you go on in Acts, you see all these warnings from God, like, Paul, this isn't going to get any easier. You need to be paying attention. So Paul might have been thinking, if I will never be here again, if I will never see my brothers and sisters in Christ again in Troas, I've got a lot to say. And I think I can recognize that. If I knew that I would never have the opportunity to stand up here and speak to you, my friends, who I care for, I love, who've been through a lot of great things and a lot of grief together, if I knew I would never see you again, I would probably have a lot more to say. I don't know if I'd make it to midnight, but I would have a lot more to say. So we see these similarities, right? They met on the first day. We meet on Sunday. We got that. Check. They broke bread together. Check. They gave great attention to the Word of God. And it doesn't matter who's up here on a Sunday morning. That's one thing that we always take very seriously. Check. And we find other places in Acts where it talks about when they would gather together, they would worship together, they would pray together. We've done that. Check, check. So we see the body of Christ is the body of Christ. From generation to generation. And then as we move on to verse 9, we see even more similarities between the early church and the modern church. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. People slept in church. (laughs) Pastors talked on and on. There's no differences. Now, I get it if you doze off in here. These chairs are way more comfortable than a windowsill. And the good news is, if you do doze off, you're going to fall like a foot. You're not going to fall three stories. And we don't even have windows. You're welcome. (laughs) And I'll confess, it's sometimes easy to doze off in church. I did it two weeks ago, the Sunday after nationals. I sat in the back row by Skip, and I said, if I snore, elbow me. (laughs) He never did elbow me, but I know I was back there doing the bobblehead thing. And it's it's no offense to Andrew. Uh, It wasn't his teaching. I went back and watched it. It was phenomenal. So, no offense. I mean, it happened to the Apostle Paul. So... (laughs) And verse 8 says, there were many lamps in an upstairs room where we were meeting. So this tells us, it kind of sets the scene, that there's a lot of people there. And it was probably warm. And if you know the culture, this Sunday for them would have been just another day of work. So they might have met in the morning, and then they would have a full day of work, and then they would meet in the evening, or they would meet both in the morning and evening. So we see Eutychus, who is probably tired, after a long day of work, yet he chooses to go to church. And then he sits down, and it gets toasty in there. And he's in the window and probably feels an occasional breeze across his face. Paul keeps talking and talking. He dozes off, and he falls three stories to his death. But I read a couple commentaries this week that said, well, maybe he didn't actually die. 
Maybe he was like in a coma or maybe he was just knocked out for a couple minutes. I guess the two arguments I would have with that is Luke was there, right? Does anybody remember what Luke, what his occupation was before like missionary work started? He was a doctor. So I would like to think that Luke was a good enough doctor that he could tell the difference between somebody that was knocked out and somebody that had died. And the second argument I'd have is my Bible says that he was dead. And so I have a hard time arguing with God's word. Like this was the one thing out of all of Luke's writing that he got wrong. So Eutychus falls asleep and falls three stories to his death. And another interesting side note is the name Eutychus means lucky. I think there's two sides to that coin. So when he falls, you can only imagine that there was this commotion or this chaos that broke out. Like, what do we do? He just fell from the window. So Paul obviously stops his teaching and he goes down and he throws himself on a young man and he hugs him. Probably the exact opposite of what any of us would do. I mean, we're not going to go body slam somebody and then squeeze them when we think they've been hurt that bad. In fact, I know we wouldn't because I have a story, and it's a true story, as crazy as this might sound, of a lucky. So I don't remember how many years ago it was. I tried to figure it out the other day, and I couldn't. But the Pella Hospital was building their big addition on the west side. And I was leading a crew that was in charge of putting a new roof on that addition. And so we get to work one day, and there was stuff laying all over. So we commenced to start cleaning up the area so we could start putting the roof down. So two of these guys went over and picked up a big piece of sheet metal to get it out of our way, not knowing that that piece of sheet metal was covering up a hole. So they pick it up and they start walking, and obviously you can't see through sheet metal. So he's walking and steps in a hole. As he's falling, he hits his head on a pipe and then lands on the concrete, I don't know, 15, 20 feet below. And chaos broke out. Some of the guys took off of the ladder so they could get down to him to see if he was okay. Other guys just literally ran around in circles with their heads cut off like they had no idea what to do. A couple of them were just talking a million miles an hour in Spanish. I have no idea what they were saying. And in my confusion, I went over and I looked down through the hole. And there was Lucky. And it was just like the movies. Like his legs looked all weird and there was blood coming from the back of his head. And I'm like, oh boy. And everything inside of me wanted to panic. But I'm like, I've got to get my friend help. So I call 911. The lady answers the phone, 911, what's your emergency? And I don't know if you've ever called 911, but as they're talking, you can hear them typing. She says, 911, what's your emergency? And I'm like, we need an ambulance as fast as you can. I've had a, a man fall through a hole. He's unconscious. He's bleeding from the back of his head. We need help now. And I can hear her typing. She said, okay, sir, what's your location? I'm at the Pella Hospital. <laughs> and there's just silence. Like I could hear her thinking, if that's possible. 
And I said, no, you don't understand. We're working at the Pella Hospital. And so I had to explain this as fast as I could. And so finally she got it. She's like, okay, we're on our way. We'll be there. And so then I head to the ladder and run down. And as I get to this young man, the first thing they say to me is he's alive. That wave of relief. So when Paul says he's alive, don't be alarmed. He's alive. I understand that feeling. Let me finish the story. Lucky ended up getting six stitches in the back of his head. He cracked his wrist, and he was back at work the next week. Praise the Lord. So back to Paul and Eutychus. Don't be alarmed. He's alive. And if you've ever been in a scenario anything similar to what I just explained, you understand that when, it, when that adrenaline hits, when you're that scared, you can't just calm down and walk away. Paul body slams him, squeezes him, says, don't be alarmed, he's fine, he's alive. And then he goes back upstairs, breaks bread, shares communion with his friends, to, to remember, to reflect on the one who is resurrected. And then he talks until the sun comes up. That's a big night, y'all. How would you feel? If you put yourself in that scenario, how would you feel? Well, this says that the people were comforted and they took the, took the boy home alive. I probably would have been comforted if I just made it through that night. Now, some of you might be wondering when I'm going to stop talking. And it was a late night at the races, so some of you might be ready to doze off. I heard Bob laugh at that, so he's about ready to doze off over there. <laughs> but here's what I want to say. I don't condone... I don't condone or certainly encourage sleeping in church. I'm guilty of it. But I think there's worse things that we could do. Right? Because when you're sleeping, you're just defenseless. You're unaware of what's going on around you. You're completely inactive. So if you need to catch a few Z's here, I'm okay with it. Because I don't want you to sleep in your faith when you leave here. To be unaware of the people around you. To be defenseless to what the enemy is trying to do to you in your faith. To be inactive in your faith. I would rather have you sleep here and be awake and alive when you go out there. So there's a man named Charles Spurgeon, who I read, had, he had three great stories or analogies that kind of explain this same scenario. So the first story is there's this great plague breaking out through a city. Thousands of people are dying. There's city officials walking through the street just yelling, bring out your dead. 
Bring out the dead. And all the while, there's a doctor in the city who has the cure. But he's asleep. And so we just want to grab that man and say, wake up, let's go. And the second story was about a ship. Had dozens of people on it. And it was caught in a storm and it was out of control and headed for the rocks. Chaos had broke out. And all the while, the captain of the boat was asleep. And so we want to tell the captain, wake up. Let's go. And then the third story was about a prison inmate who was being led out of his cell and walked down a hallway to his execution. And as he walked down that long, cold, quiet hallway, he was filled with anxiety. He was filled with fear of death and what comes after death. And all the while, there was a a guard with a letter of pardon in his pocket, and he was sound asleep. You would want to grab the guard and say, wake up, let's go. So my point to those friends is it doesn't matter if you're called to share the gospel with an entire city, whether you're called to share the gospel and love and encourage and strengthen people in your home or in your workplace, or maybe you're just called to share it with that one person. Their life depends on it. Right? The early church, we see them called to share the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Some of you may be called to do that. Some of you may be called to share it in Uganda or Haiti or Abaco. But I think mostly we're called to share it in Knoxville and Pella, Pleasantville and Melcher and Monroe, your home, your workplace. So when we say, let's go, We're not just saying, let's go to church and be comfortable with the people that we know believe the same thing we believe. When we say, let's go, it means let's go to church, but it means let's also go out there to save the inmate doomed for certain death. So when we come to communion this morning, We get to do it the same way that the early church did. We're no different. And it doesn't matter if you're an Aristarchus or if you're a Secundus. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher that stands up here and goes on and on. Or if you're the one dozing off. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus died on the cross for you. He gave us restoration to a right standing with God the Father. And as awesome as that news is, when we truly receive it, that's not for us to be selfish with. That has to be shared. So we can't sleep on it. We have to go. So as you come this morning to communion, I pray that you would receive that grace, that you would understand 
maybe for the first time or maybe in a renewed way, what the cross means in your life. And I also pray that you would receive, maybe for the first time or in a renewed way, who it is that you're called to share that with. Because lives depend on it. And we're no different than the early church who we read time and time again. They did it. And we can too. So let's pray. So Father God, we thank you first and foremost for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you for your word and the ways that it teaches us, encourages us, strengthens us. And we confess that there are so many ways that we can just say, that's not for me. That's somebody else's job. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I don't even know what to say. But we declare that that is a lie. That Jesus, we, we know that you died on the cross for us. There's nothing that we can do that can separate us from that love. So Holy Spirit, would you meet each and every one of us here where we need you the most? Would you remove the lies? Would you break the chains that are keeping us from going and doing what you're calling us to do? We just thank you that you are God and that we are not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.